Then is called Light Shining in the Darkness. And I'll just be dealing with the first five verses today. To begin, I want to talk about how the crooked way is revealed. The Bible teaches us that sin is crookedness. That's one way that the Hebrew language of the Old Testament uh, defines sin. It is a perversion, it is a rebellion against God, it is taking the glory of God, the will of God, the purposes of God, and twisting them, and corrupting them. And the way in which God deals with our sin is through the Word of God, through the spoken Word. That's how God deals with sin. He declares his word and the light of the gospel and the glory of God shines forth through his words, as the Bible says, into our hearts and exposes sin. So as we look at Ezra today, I'm going to ask you to turn with me first to Hebrews. I want to spend a few minutes in Hebrews thinking about how this crooked way, the sin in our lives is exposed or revealed to us. Hebrews chapter 3. Now, to give you some context of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is, is, is going through in a way showing how Jesus is better than all the Old Testament uh, themes and shadows and, and, and events that have happened. He's better than the angels. He's better than even Moses. And that ultimately, he's the promised rest that we need in our lives. The promised land was a great land. It was a, a land that was described as flowing with milk and honey. But it was a land that one day would, would be destroyed by God It's the eternal rest that we need as human beings. And that eternal rest is only found in Jesus. He is our eternal rest. And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3 is making this analogy back to the Old Testament about the faithfulness of Moses and the disobedience and the lack of or the unfaithfulness of God's people. Look in verses 5 and 6. Moses was, a, was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken, that were, that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faith, faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So that's, that's just the writer setting up this this contrast between Christ being the better Moses, Christ being the one that will provide a spiritual rest when we trust in Him by faith. Jump down to verse uh, 16. Now for those who heard, uh, for, those, uh, th- for those were those who heard and yet rebelled. Was it not all who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? 
Paul, or the writer of Hebrews is talking about this, this rest, this promised land picture that the Israelites did not experience in the time of Moses because they were disobedient to the word of God. They were sinful. They had, they had wandered in the desert because of their disobedience. And God was judging them and he was punishing them. And so the writer is drawing us to understand this comparison between those who are obedient to God's word and those who are disobedient in their sin. Now jump to verse uh, chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. I know I'm jumping through here, but I'm getting to a point. He says, now, therefore, let us strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience like the people in Israel. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and the spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Now, as I said, this eternal rest that is found in Jesus, it can only be found in Jesus. And we trust him and, and we trust the words that he's given us. And that eternal rest is, is a spiritual prosperity that we are blessed with by God. And it comes with people who listen to the word of God, who feed off of the word of God, and they allow the word of God to do a work against or in conflict with the sinfulness in our own lives. And so as we think about the doctrine of sin and we think about our lives as sinful human beings, we must begin by thinking about the power of the Word of God, the living, revealed Word of God. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is the living Word. He is the Word who became flesh or the, the, the Word incarnate. The Bible tells us in John that, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is speaking about Jesus as the living Word. And in Him, the Bible says, was life. And that life was the light of men. So Jesus has this power to give life where there is no life. And that is the effect of the Word of God in us is that when you and I hear the gospel message, when we hear the truth of Jesus, the light of the gospel that speaks of Jesus penetrates our hearts, exposes our sin, and shows us our need for Him. That's what the writer is trying to get to. That is the pathway to eternal rest that is found in Jesus. So it's the Word of God that is living it exposes our sin for us. The Bible says that, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapters 1 and 2 talk about that. But particularly in chapter 2 it says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And as we sang today, but God made us alive. So the power of the gospel, the life-giving work of God through Jesus and His Word is that dead people are made alive by the Word of God. It's the light shining in the darkness in our lives. Now that happens initially for us, church, and it continually happens day by day. 
The regenerating work, the, the giving of new life happens when we put our faith in Jesus and it continually happens day by day as we are trusting in Him and we are submitting our lives to the Word of God. Spurgeon has a great quote. He says, The Word of God is so sharp a thing, so full of cutting power, that you may be bleeding under its wounds before you have seriously suspected the possibility of such a thing. You cannot come near the gospel without its having a measure of influence over you and God blessing you. It may cut you down and kill your sins when you have no idea that such a work is being done. Yes, when Christ comes, he says, he comes not to send peace on the earth, but a sword. And that sword begins at home in our own souls, killing, cutting, hacking, breaking in pieces. Blessed is that man, he says, who knows the word of the Lord by its exceeding sharpness. For it kills nothing but that which ought to be killed. It quickens and gives new life to all that is of God. So church, as we consider the, the, the sinfulness that we struggle with as followers of Jesus Christ, we understand that it's the Word of God and the, the sharpness of the, the Word of God that penetrates our souls. And as this verse in Hebrew says, even discerning the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. Before we ever create or commit an act of sinfulness, our thoughts and our intentions bring guiltiness before us, right? Because even those God can see, He can understand our failures as sinful human beings. Because the Word of God exposes that sin in our lives. And He... And, and, and he uses that word to do two particular things. He exposes that sin in the light of God's holiness and in the light of his sovereignty. In the light of his holiness and his sovereignty. Because the word sin is defined as that which is contrasting with God's holiness. Back in Genesis chapter 3, we know that what occurred in the Garden of Eden was never actually called sin in those verses. But instead was, as we see it, rebellion against God's kingly rule and authority. God put all the trees in the garden and He said, Enjoy everything, all the fruit that you have, but do not eat from the tree of this, of this tree here, the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in choosing to rebel against God and, and, and eat that fruit, Adam and Eve were making a statement to say, we are choosing to reject your authority over our life. And so the Word of God exposes our sin and shows us that when we sin, we are putting our foot down and saying to God, I reject your authority. Have you ever known anybody in your lifetime that got emancipated from their family? That, that was a, a, a term that I learned 
many years ago, and, and, and sometimes that happens for uh, reasons that I'm not going to get into, but emancipation is a liberation as a child from their parents to say, they are no longer responsible for me, I am responsible for myself. And there's a, a theologian, Herman Bavink, that, that says that the, the point of the fall narrative in Genesis is to point to the human's desire for autonomy from God. That to know good and evil is to become the determiner of good and evil. And it is to decide for oneself what is right and wrong. And not to submit to any external law. In short, to seek the knowledge of good and evil is to desire emancipation from God. Which is why Jesus says, or uh, the, God said that to eat that fruit is to become like God. So as we consider sin, and we consider this idea of sin being a rebellion against God, against his sovereignty, against his authority, authority, it's also a rebellion against his holiness. Because that which God created as good, sin perverts it and corrupts it and makes what is straight crooked. There are a few Hebrew words and Greek words that are used throughout the Bible that pinpoint the defining characteristics of sin. Most particular, the most famous of the definitions is that sin can be defined as missing the mark. Missing the mark. But other words that are used for sin in the Bible or iniquity or transgression, they're all synonymous words. And a few of them translate to that which is twisted or crooked or perverse. That is a great description of sin. God has a plan for Adam and Eve in the garden. They twisted and corrupted God's plan and went their own direction. Day by day, we are beset with sin in which we want emancipation and we want to take what God has made and his purposes and say, no, I am in charge. I will do what is, is, is best for me in these moments that I can consider best. And folks, when we do that, we have missed the mark. To think that we could possibly know what is best for us above and beyond a sovereign God. It's foolishness. It's foolishness. And that standard that God has set for us by which we, mi- we miss are His perfections, are His righteousness, and His holiness. These standards that we will never live up to. That we will always fall short of. Sin is crookedness and perversion. I have kind of this strange attraction to sports-related injuries. I know that's strange. But it's like, I I watch those videos where someone is, their leg is broken in a football game or or a basketball game, and and you watch it, and, and you have this really strange sensation to go and watch it again. I admit that. I confess it. This week... Uh, uh, Russell Wilson for the Seahawks literally dislocated his finger. It was sticking sideways uh, in the middle of a football game. And of course, 
naturally, the commentators are bringing this to the attention of everybody that's watching as if we need some description of this. Guys, I think that Russell Wilson's hurt his finger. Really? Is it because it's sticking in a direction that it's not belonging or God created it to go? Is that the first sign here that you're, you're, you're telling me? But see, the point is, is that we know what bones are supposed to do. You go in to get an x-ray and, and you have this standard for the x-ray. This is what this bone looks like. Your x-ray shows us that that bone is twisted or corrupted. The standard for God that God holds us to is His holiness and perfection. And we have twisted it and corrupted it in sin. We have missed the mark. So, you ask multiple times in your mind, what does this have to do with Ezra? Well, because in the time that Ezra had arrived back in Jerusalem, he was doing his job proclaiming the word of God. That's what his, he was set out to do back in chapter 7. We were told that Ezra was going to go back and he was going to preach the word. He was going to teach the, the law of God to the people. And then a, a, a pagan king said, Ezra, this is what I want you to go do. And if, there, if you find people that don't know the law of God, teach it to them. So that was Ezra's job. That's, that's what he had been set out to do. And without the word even saying it, we know that between the end of verses, or chapter 9 and, or 8 and in the beginning of chapter 9, the word of God was having an effect on the people. You know how I know that? Because in chapter 9, the verses that Brandon read, the sin of Israel was exposed. Now how is sin exposed? When the word of God penetrates the people. They weren't, they weren't idly by waiting. The word of God had penetrated the hearts of Israel or of the Jews and they were, they were exposed. The sinfulness had been brought to light. And what was that sinfulness? Well, look at Ezra chapter 9. These elders, these leaders of the people, in verse 1, come to Ezra immediately and approach him. The people of Israel, they say, and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they, had, they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, they say, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. What a tragic thing to hear for Ezra. What a tragic thing for us to read. Once again, the people of Israel have disobeyed the, the, the command of God. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, back in Exodus the, the command of God over and over again was for the people of Israel to separate themselves as a nation from the people of the foreign lands. They were not to intermarry with people other than Israelites. Now, I, I want to be very clear 
that this was not a prejudicial act by God. God was not trying to generate prejudice among the the Israelites. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 7, you understand why God commanded these, uh, his people to not intermarry with foreign daughters, as he says. Deuteronomy chapter 7 It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, those same nations are mentioned. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them, he says, to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, taking their daughters for your sons. Why? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 4. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them, he says. You shall break down their altars and dash into pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. And over and over again, the people of Israel did not listen. They said, no Lord, we're going to do what we want to do. These women are beautiful. This land is beautiful. We want to do what is best for us. And so in a sad indignation and, and, and report about the continual disobedience, the psalmist writes, they did not destroy the peoples in Psalm 106, as the Lord commanded. But they mixed with the nations, and they learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They're like, what's the big deal? Israel intermarried with people of different cultures. That's the, that's the kind of world that we want to live in, right? Right? Again, God was not trying to bring about prejudice. He wants these people, His people, that He deemed as holy, to not fall into the sinfulness of idolatry. Continuing in Psalm 106, listen to how far the sinfulness goes for for Israel. He says, they served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their own sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with thus, uh, blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts, and they played the horror in their deeds. Why does God call us out of sinfulness by His Word? Because it's for our good. That in our own sinfulness and idolatry, it leads us not only to our own destruction, but the destruction of our children and our families. God's not some form of meanie up in heaven trying to put a damper on our lives here on earth. He is seeking for our good with His Word. And so the Word comes to Ezra in Ezra chapter 9 of the continual sinfulness once again. And we say, 
It's just fascinating. How can they just leave captivity for 70 years knowing that they had been in that captivity because of their disobedience and sinfulness against God? And there they get into the promised land, and what do they do? They fall into the same disobedience. How could that happen? It's the nature of sin. It's in all of us. We don't just sin, we are sinners by birth. And only by the transforming power of Jesus can we overcome sin day by day, but it will only be in a place of eternity in the presence of Jesus Christ where sin is completely laid waste, where there is no longer fear or or sadness or, or, or seeking the flesh and the desires. Only when sin is completely destroyed will we experience a freedom from that sin. But until then, Christ gives us freedom. He says, you are no longer in bondage to sin. We have that freedom in Jesus because of his power displayed in the death and resurrection. And so Ezra receives this word by the the, the sending forth of the word of God, it exposes the sin in Israel. And that, Israel, and that, is, uh, that the report of sinfulness comes back to their spiritual leader. And it doesn't mention it here, and, and I'm going to get into the rest of this chapter next week. But Ezra... In a, in a prayer, this, is, this prayer of brokenness to, to Yahweh, he, he says something very powerful in, in chapter 9, verse 15. He says, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped the captivity as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt for none can stand before you because of this. Friend, we have to understand that that the overwhelming sinfulness that we face in this world will face the great consequence of the wrath of God. Ezra says, none can stand before you because of this. Because God is a just God. It's all about the character of God, about His holiness, about His fairness or His justice that says, I cannot allow sin to go unpunished. I must punish sin. The psalmist in Psalm 90 says, We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities Before you are secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days, they write, pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. It is tragic to me today to think that we are so afraid of everything in this world, on this earth, and yet we are not fearing what we should fear, the wrath and, the, and the, the judgment of a holy God against sin. 
There is no pandemic. There is no global war. There is nothing that we should be afraid of in comparison to the wrath of God against sin. The wrath of God is coming. And while these pandemics and these global wars and a meteor smashing into the earth may kill our bodies, but our souls will live in eternity rather under the wrath of God suffering for sin forever or in the beautiful, sweet, joyful presence of Jesus without end. It's one or the other. And so you must ask yourself, friend, this, this afternoon, where will you be in the end? Has the Word of God so penetrated your heart and brought you to a realization of the depth of your sin that the only hope that you have is in a perfect, sinless life of Jesus who gave His life freely so that you may be rescued from this great sin debt? where you will spend eternity with Him. Are you trusting in that? I hope that this message, as difficult as a message is about sin, I hope it brings us great awareness of the beauty of the gospel and the grace of Jesus. Because, friend, Jesus lived a perfect life because you and I failed to live that. He obeyed perfectly in every thought, word, and deed. He is sinless only because He is God in the flesh and only He can accomplish sinlessness. And in His sinlessness, He became the righteousness for us so that we might, by trusting in Him in faith, be rescued from our unrighteousness. And he died. And his death was a sacrificial death. He was the only and final perfect sacrifice that was able to cover your sin. And not just your sin, but the sins of all his people throughout all history. So that all of God. God's purposes were fulfilled in Jesus. And all the blood that was shed was able to cover and provide the forgiveness of sins that were needed. And finally, on the third day, He rose. His lifeless body gained new life. And He walked out of the grave alive and restored, showing us that death and sin is never or no longer our enemy. He defeated that enemy. And He made us, or He makes us spiritually alive so that we might also escape the wrath of God that He bore on Himself. And so we have hope in a difficult message, in a difficult topic of sin that you may not hear in churches across this this land anymore, but that sin is real and the reality of sin in our culture, in our lives, and even in the church is a reality. And so we must hope in Jesus and we must trust in Jesus as our only rescue.
But lastly, I want us to look at the last verses of this section, verses 3, 4, and 5. And I want us to consider how the crooked way, the the way of sinfulness, is repulsive. And I love the I love the Word of God. I love the original languages. Sometimes we lose the, the measure of, of emphasis in translation. But if, if you look in verses 3 through 5, you'll notice that the major and repeated response from Ezra about the news of the sinfulness of, of God's people was that he was disgusted. He was appalled if your translation says that. Being appalled or repulsed is is to be horrified by something to this degree. The Hebrew word oftentimes is used for for the translation of something that is desolate. Like a barren, empty, desolate place like like the wilderness or the desert. But in the Bible, it was used for a descriptive term used of something that was desolate because of the judgment of God. So Sodom and Gomorrah and what laid, that was laid waste in the Old Testament was a desolate place. Which if you follow biblical archaeology, in the last few months they found some of the most uh, the clearest and most precise evidence of the city of Sodom that, that just, again, proves the validity and the truthfulness of the Bible. I would encourage you, I'll post something on our faith life about these, these new findings that have just, it's been amazing. But, but Sodom was a, was a desolate place because the judgment of God fell upon it. And, and if you imagine yourself riding along and, and, knowing that, that Sodom was there and, and now Sodom is laid waste, how would you react? You would be horrified. You, you would be appalled. You'd be like, what in the world happened? How, how, how did this possibly happen? That's the same word that describes Ezra's reaction to sin. That he was appalled by this. And the words describing his, his repulsiveness toward this sin, this grave sin, is only insin- accentuated by his actions. The Bible says in verse 3, he tears his garment and his cloak, things that were valuable to him. He pulls the hair from his head and his beard as he sa- sits there appalled. He even says that, that he sits there, verse 5, until the evening sacrifice, when he rises from his, sac, uh, his fasting with his torn garment, falling upon the knees, spreading out his hands to the Lord his God. His only response, his, or his, his, his primary response in, in this mourning over sin and being repulsed over sin is he, he, he just can't do anything but pray. 
And I just am challenged. I was so challenged by that this week to, to consider my own life. And I invite you to consider your own life and, and, and to consider, am I repulsed by sin in the world and in my own life? Because I, I think a lot of times we, we become like cattle and electric fences that, that learn to, to, to walk close to electric fence and, and they get shocked and then the shock is a lessened effect every single time until they finally are not affected by that at all and they can just walk right through any barrier that will stop them. And sometimes we, we dabble with sin to such a degree that we are calloused by it. We're not repulsed by it. It no longer really affects us like it should affect us. To learn of sin in our own life or sin in someone else's lives would never lead us in this day and age to sit still for an entire day in mourning and grief like Ezra did. Tearing our clothes in protest and shock. But when we understand the holiness of God, when we understand the, the glory that is due to His name, when we understand the faith that we have put our, our we have, the faith that we have given to the Lord Jesus, the trust that we have in Him. The name that is greater than any name that that bears the mark of holiness and perfection. When we begin to love that and, and cherish that, then when sin comes, we are repulsed. We are repulsed in a greater way than we would ever be repulsed by someone speaking ill of our family members or our friends talking badly about them, where we're horrified in those moments. But are we horrified when the name of our God, our Savior and Creator, is trampled in the mud because of sin and rebellion against Him? So let us be people that live in such a way that we turn from sin and we detest sin for the sake of God's name and for His glory. Let us awaken to some lethargy that we have regarding sin so that we may detest it as it dishonors our God. And as we see it, as we stand against it, let us be like Ezra is in chapter 9, that may it bring us to our knees in prayer, interceding for those, whether it be ourselves or others, that have fallen so deeply into sin, that all we can do is throw up our hands and put our faith and trust in a God who is able to bring about change through His Word. I don't know about you, church, but I am at times hopeless. I have momentary hopeless, hopelessness for the people in my life that seem unaffected by the gospel. And I have to remind myself that only God's word can penetrate their heart. Only God's word can bring about an effect 
that glorifies him. And I may detest what they do, and I may detest how they live, but the antidote, the remedy, is not my love. It's not my kindness. The ultimate remedy is the word of God that brings about effect in them. Do they need my love? Of course. Do they need my kindness? Absolutely. But I'm not going to change their mind by fixing them a meal, by inviting them into my home. Only God will change their mind through the penetrating and powerful word of God that will always have its effect. And so I pray you will trust in that today. In the situations that you are living in, in your own life. If you find yourself at times distant from the Word of God, let me, let me just tell you that the, the less you spend in God's Word, the less you will feel the convicting sword of the Spirit upon your life. But as the people of Israel needed, so you and I need the Word of God to penetrate us. It's a necessary need. It's a necessary discipline that the Lord brings upon our lives for our good. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you, God, that, Lord, in and of ourselves, we are hopeless. We are unable to, to do what is necessary spiritually. The best description you could have ever given humanity in regards to our spiritual lives is that we are dead. And we thank you for your revealed word that brings about hope, that brings about awakening and regeneration, that brings us and invites us to see Jesus as the only peace and rest that we may find in this world. And so, Father, I pray that we would consider sin in this world as detestable to you. That it's repulsive to you, and so it would be repulsive to us. And as we evaluate and examine the sin in our own life, we would be such a people that are repentant, turning away from sin and turning toward the gospel for hope. Hope of salvation hope of forgiveness. Father, you write in your word in Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. the voice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary He declares His work is finished He has spoken this hope to me Though the sun had ceased its shining 
Though the war appeared as lost, Christ had triumphed over evil. It was finished upon that cross. Now the curse, it has been broken. Jesus.